welcome to the Science Shambles podcast, producer Trent here. This episode is the podcast audio version of our regular Sunday Science Shambles Q&A show, which is streamed live at 3pm British summertime every Sunday on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Cosmic Shambles. So obviously since this was uh, initially a live stream, there might be a couple of visual elements that don't translate as well to the audio version on the podcast and there might be the one or two technical hitches, such as the uh, joy of doing live stream shows over the internet uh, when everyone's stuck at home. And remember, you can support us at the Cosmic Shambles Network, patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. If you head there and subscribe, uh, not only do you get lots of goodies, extra shows, bonus live streams and all that sort of stuff, uh, that's that support is what enables us to keep making these podcasts and the live streams and everything else uh, while we can't be out doing live shows like we normally would be. And check out all the other great science and culture content we've got going on at cosmicshambles.com. There's the new uh, exclusive documentary series we made with the European Space Agency with Helen Chersky and Ginny Smith and Tim Peake and others. Lots of other live streams, blogs, podcasts, and plenty of things to keep you occupied. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to this week's Sunday Science Q&A coming live as usual. I think today we're merely across three time zones and uh, we're going to be talking quite a lot about neuroscience. You've sent in some fantastic questions. If any of you watching now want to ask further questions, just go down to our feed and uh, we will react to uh, live questions that we're getting as well. Uh, a few things to tell you if you've not seen Sunday Science Q&A before or any of the other stuff we've been doing at Stay at Home Festival. There is a tip jar at the bottom which we've been using to gather money for art centres and artists and uh, so if you want to donate at any point during the day during this afternoon that's fantastic don't worry if you can't as well because I realize many people are in difficult situations this is uh, free to all of you and uh, also another thing to mention is uh, if you do like the stuff we're doing we have got a new Patreon uh, Cosmic Shambles fundraiser uh, and so you can go there to patreon.com Cosmic Shambles and we'll be using that for Josie, me, Trent, Helen etc to keep making the shows some of you might have seen Helen's documentary uh, uh, that she did with uh, Ginny Smith, uh, the European uh, Space Agency, uh, about gravity, etc. I was like to say gravity, etc. Uh, and uh, that is new episodes of that are coming out all the time. And of course, we're going to be making loads of these next Sunday. We're at Cheltenham Science Festival. I mean, we're not at Cheltenham Science Festival, but we are at Cheltenham Science Festival. And that is, we're going to be doing uh, a show, the normal kind of show we would do on the last night of the Cheltenham Science Festival. We've got, I'll, I'll check on the list. We've got uh, George A. Uh, Keisha Thompson who's doing some amazing stuff Katie Mack who I've mentioned many times for her new book End of Everything is is utterly brilliant and uh, Josie Long and me as well as others um, and also tonight 8.30 Josie is doing a live stream of her show Tender and on Wednesday night I'm going to be doing part two of my I'm a Joke and So Are You uh, show which is going to be a lot more of the stuff on neuroscience and psychology and anxiety and a lot of the stuff that I didn't fit in last week. Hello, thank you for listening to the boring bit at the beginning but at least we don't have advertisers now uh helen i'm going to go oh, uh, first of all helen it's lovely to have we've done every single one of these so far i think helen Chers we have. yeah well, we're well, still no. fought, we haven't had a fight yet oh no but i mean if this had been in the flesh we are you know it's it's, 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 vicious. it's vicious isn't it it's it's, it's a horrible <laughs> road movie it's planes trains and automobiles and you know what i want to be steve martin but i know i'm john candy it's okay we know why you've been having those Cox boxing lessons brian cox saving it up Saving it up for when you're allowed out. Oh, I really miss it. This time last year, I was on a flight going to Hong Kong. 
and uh, and then for an Australian tour. It feels so strange, all of those changes. Um, I want to just start, first of all, have a quick, I'm, I'm just interested in this. Last night I watched SpaceX, the, 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 the launch, and for a moment, for a short period of time, it, it's always wonderful to see a rocket taking off. It's always wonderful to see that level of human imagination and human endeavor. And then someone reminded me of Gil Scott Heron's brilliant piece of work, uh, Whitey on the Moon, and reminded me of the disparity that, that, that we have in the world. And of course, at the moment in particular, we're seeing that uh, in, in what is going on in, in, in the USA. And I wanted to get your, because I did notice there was a certain amount of politicization. There was a particularly uh, unpleasant and, and strange moment with, with Donald Trump, who slightly, I think, you know, took over the NASA channel in, in, in a way of propaganda. And, uh, and there was also an incredible moment of Fox News where they thought they were going to Donald Trump. And actually what they basically heard was just a crowd chanting, I can't breathe and i know this is a dark i promise we'll get onto light things but that clash of ideologies that idea where you are watching the very best of science and at the same time we still wonder our shortfall of human imagination how how do we somehow bring those things together it's really difficult because i mean we forget right that the first the apollo mission was a political thing they did it so that russia didn't do it first so it's not like any of this is a new thing but what i do think is that the disparity is becoming much harder to ignore as it always should be people talk about you know man on the moon no women we notice even back then and and the problem is that people say oh well uh and it's the same with technology of any type like of course humans will be able to do this year it's not all humans though is it and there's this like oh we're bringing everyone with us and they, you get away with it for a while because it feels like a human achievement we're all humans everybody you know someone went to the moon we're all part of it and then you look at um a lot of the technologies now and you go that is not the case you know humans can do amazing things and yet they're also capable of ignoring some of the most horrific things. And it is one of the things that it was, there was an argument that the amount of money that was spent on Apollo, there were a lot of people, even at the time who said you could have spent that, you know, bringing people out of poverty. And the argument has always been, um, but it's inspiring. Humanity needs to be inspired. You need to feel there's a higher aim and a higher thing. So it's worth going to space and not spending that money on vaccines, for example, because, Everyone is inspired and it's a really elitist outlook. And I suspect that they're not going to get away with it for much longer. Um, and, and, and so, that you know, we see protests are organised so quickly now. I mean, we've seen in the past few days protests come from nowhere so, so quickly. And so I, it is really difficult. And of course, Elon Musk himself is not without controversy, right? He is not exactly... Um, you wouldn't want him in charge of the world. He might be very good at running battery construction plants um but yeah it's it's really hard and pete the problem is humans really struggle to hold those two ideas the idea that we want perfect heroes or perfect villains and humans really don't like it when someone like elon musk is oh he's the hero who you know created tesla cars but also he's the villain who was frankly a right ass to someone on twitter and then pretended he didn't do it and 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 we don't like it we don't like that and i think I don't know if there's a way around that. Because um, that's a human thing, isn't it? I wonder if I can ask, I, I don't, don't know, know whether David or, or Heather have an opinion, but David, I'd like to, that thing, David Eagleman, by the way, everyone, welcome everyone, to the welcome Sunday to show. The Sunday. And we will be talking about your book as well, and that sort of thing. But this is an interesting psychological problem, isn't it? And, which is, 
how we and i know cognitive dissonance comes into this but that idea of how we can hold two things in our brain which is i think as human beings we should be traveling towards the stars and we should we should feel the same energy the same you know for also solving problems which should have been solved decades ago from from just the the, the idea of understanding the human brain how can we understand what's going on um, well, first of all, good well, to be all, good to be here. And second of all, um, you are not one thing. Um, the brain is made up of lots and lots of competing drives and networks. And who you are is more like a neural parliament with different political parties all voting different things. And um, what you actually do at any moment depends on what vote is winning at that moment. So it's perfectly possible to be. Uh, you know, inspired and feel politically X, Y, Z and also want to go to the bathroom and get some lunch and all of those things at the same time. And that's what makes humans interesting and complex and nuanced is that we are a we're built of a team of rivals. Well, it's interesting because you because you're you're well the the, the book that's just gonna... the safety net, which is a kind of revisit of of, of of one of your previous books, and that's interesting because you talk a lot about the technology and communication technology, and this seems to be one of the major battles we have, which is we as 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 uh, as Helen was saying, we want to hold people up, but and say this person is wonderful, and then we perhaps do that too much, and then we find out there is something we disagree with them, one opinion that is an opinion that we hold strongly, and that person crashes on the rocks. They're, 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 they're destroyed. We feel as if one of our gods, you know, again, it's the feet of clay. It's the moment the God bleeds. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, this is part of our um, weakness about making internal models about other people. People are super complex and the way we model them is usually quite simple. And, um, you know, one of the passages into maturity is recognizing that people are quite complicated and that, and, and that when it comes to issues like truth, no one actually has a lock on that. Everyone has lots of different data and ways of interpreting the data. And, and, and that's why we see different political opinions across the board. So part of, uh, yeah, part of becoming more mature is understanding that we don't have to uh, have somebody go from idol to devil uh, immediately. So David, I'm really interested though in, in what, for some people, some of the time, uh, there was a cultural thing of being very accept accepting of the different facets. And for some people, perhaps at the moment, you know, we see a very divided society, society where it really is us or them in some people's minds. What, where's the transition between, is it a cultural decision? Is it education? How do you get from the place where you're more flexible and you allow for these things to the place? Because it's, it's not just age, right? These things are, it looks cultural. How, how do you create those and how do you break them down? Ah, ah, good question. I, I mean, I, from my biased point of view, I think I got there from neuroscience, which is to say, understanding that the notions we have of people when we're children um, is not how people act. And, and, you know, when one takes an exam of one's own an examination of one's own behavior and sees, gosh, I wish I hadn't have done that. How, how did I do that in that situation? Um, you know, I'm disappointed in myself. You can argue with yourself. You can cuss at yourself. You can cajole yourself. You can contract with yourself. Who's talking to whom here? It's all different parts of you. And I think as we gain a deeper understanding of this, whether by age or by neuroscience or psychology or anything else, that allows us to have a slightly more generous uh, view of other people. 
Can I just say, by the way, to everyone watching, uh, an extra special thank you to David, because David is on the West Coast of America. This is his first conversation of the morning. And this is the first time that we started the show. I think in, in kind of normally we're, we're, we're slightly lighter and frivolous. We've really gone in there hard. So I apologize for smacking you around the chops with that it's a one. It's pleasure. Um, the, um, Heather, I... Uh, Heather Berlin, who's our, our other guest, who uh, I love to have some, I really some highly recommend, really you, go, highly you, recommend go you go on, you go on, uh, on to, onto YouTube and, and various other places. Some, some of the work she's done, she's so many different ideas, sometimes my brain, sometimes other ideas, other ideas still come from the brain. This idea of our subjectivity of experience, this seems to be one of the most important things that we have been learning uh in in a much more harder scientific way which is to understand that the idea of an objective truth from the senses that we have is pretty elusive so again how do you find yourself dealing with with that idea of comprehending our subjectivity objectivity right uh just yeah starting off with small questions in the morning that's good too um so anyway thanks for having me uh it's a pleasure to be here i uh yeah, I mean, this is one of the fundamental, it's one of the reasons why I got interested in neuroscience and the brain in the first place is, you know, trying to understand how a, a physical piece of matter, however complex, which it is quite complex, can give us these subjective states, right? The, the feeling of pain or pleasure, um, the smell of a rose. And so it seems intuitively like it's beyond just computation, like there's more than... There's the neurons firing and the neurochemicals um, moving around, but yet we have this subjective experience. And, you know, the brain itself doesn't see anything, right? It's inside this, it's dark, it's black. It doesn't actually see anything. It just gets these signals. Somehow they come together in such a way that it creates this visual image in our mind, let's say when we're talking about vision. Um, but yet we know it's an approximation. You know, it's not a one-to-one -one correlation with reality. What we perceive doesn't correspond with reality. We all perceive the world in slightly different ways, right? Because our brains, although there's a lot of commonalities, um, they're all different. They're like a thumbprint, right? We each have our own unique sort of way that it's been wired up based on our experiences, the cultures we grew up in. Um, so we all perceive the world in different ways. And, and just talking about uh, just a note of what you were talking about before, you know, this kind of we can self-deceive, right? We have, let's say, an unconscious desire to, let's take this, you know, COVID right now. Let's say you're an owner of a small business and you really are motivated to, you know, you're having economic hardship. You want to open your business again, right? And so you have to somehow, your brain does this automatically and unconsciously convince yourself of all the reasons why it is a good thing to open your business. And in doing so, and you talk about cognitive dissonance, you know, in order to think you're not a bad person, like in doing so, I'm going to put people in danger. Maybe you have to downplay the, the disease. Oh, it's not so dangerous. You know, it's not so bad. And you start convincing yourself of that and you really believe it. And, and then when you take these to the extremes, you get these, you know, political divides, right? These people who are, let's say, all Trump, no matter what he does. But it's a slow process of kind of these unconscious motivations that are deceiving you. And little by little, and over time, you're fully convinced um, in your, in your belief system. And it's, it's hard to, it's hard to convince people otherwise at that point, because it's a lot of it is stemming from these unconscious processes. Most of what's happening in your brain is happening outside of awareness. So it's very hard for a conscious brain to try to control that even with bias, right? We look at, um, you know, implicit bias. People say, I'm not prejudiced. I'm, you know, and yet when we do these tasks looking at their implicit um, prejudices, they emerge. So we're not even aware of our own biases in many cases, which makes it that much more difficult to change them.
Yeah, it's, I, I find that whole thing, the, the, the world in, inside the brain, even as you when you first start talking about that, I immediately feel, my feel them even more. And the idea that I'm not feeling it there, I'm feeling it there. All of those things, once we start facing up to them, to me, make the world far more comprehensible when you realize strange, in some ways, limitations, but also the elegance of, of the delusion involved. Mm hmm. Yeah, and yeah, and I was just going to say that pain, you know, exactly, it doesn't happen in your hands; it happens in your brain. And and what's really interesting is that the brain itself doesn't feel pain. So we can be in neurosurgery operating on a patient when they're awake, and they don't, and you could be like prodding their brain, and they don't feel anything. So the thing that controls our whole sensation of pain itself doesn't feel pain. It's anyway. Sorry, I digress. Just phenomenal. This is whole phenomenal. thing is about digressing is my question. <laughs> you, you wanted to say something. Well, I wanted to ask the question about, about the, the question about the social, the people around us, because it seems one of the things we see to, to both of you really. You know, you're talking about all the many people inside our heads, but one thing we see is that behaviour. People are they use other people as examples, and I've often, you know, it's like you feel if you do something in public whatever it is, you're sort of giving someone else permission to do the same thing because someone else might look and go, oh, well, they're doing that. How how important is the power of suggestion and the social behavior of people around us in all of this? It, it's the entirety. Entirety. I mean, I mean, wh who we are, we construct from all of the things we learn from other people, both their behaviors and also the, the facts that they tell us about the world. And and this is why people go off on different trajectories in terms of their political opinions, in terms of their beliefs about the world is because of this. And, and we, you know, we all love science because it sort of steers things um, in, in a particular way. But even in science, there's a ton that's unknown. Even with something like COVID, everybody's trying to look at the data and trying to figure out stuff, but there's different ways of interpreting the data and there's impoverished data in many cases. Um, and so as a result, we, we pick and choose the, the pieces that we happen to get, and that's how we construct our pier out onto the water. Uh, but these go in different directions. I'd just like to add, I mean, we like to see ourselves as being so advanced and above these, um, these kind of forces. But, you know, we're social creatures. And the whole field of social psychology shows all of these influences um, you know, um, social facilitation, like if people are observing you, you'll, you'll, um, you know, perform better, um, or, you know, little influences that we have all the time, demon individuation, where, you know, if there's a lot of people in a crowd and, you know, and you sort of lose your sense of self and you become kind of one with this crowd, um, and people can do all sorts of very, you know, we're seeing this in riots now, right? You know, things that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise done if they were just alone making these decisions. And so, we have to sort of accept that we are very much influenced. We not, you know, there are these moments when we are sort of the masters of our own behavior, but much of the time either we're being influenced by our, our unconscious or the people around us. And it's the minority of times where we can override that and behave in a way that's kind of um, contradictory to what would be expected. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, we're still, you know, we're evolving, but we haven't reached the pinnacle of our evolution. And I think there's a ways to go. The uh, it's, it's Sarah Jane Blake, uh, the teenage brain, the development of that. Uh, that's very interesting in terms of when talking there about moments of risk where, you know, for a long time, people believe teenagers just didn't have the same awareness of risk. And that's why they did stuff. And then once you start to test and it appears that it is about the social environment you're in, it is you are aware of the risk, but you will nevertheless 
for the sake of of some kind of what you believe is social reward. That's a, I highly recommend, by the way, if anyone's uh, uh, that Sarah Jane Blakemore's book about teenage brain is, is is brilliant. I want to quickly mention your your new book, David, as well, because or, or revisited book. David, by the way, has written two two of my favourite books, which I uh, Incognito is fantastic. Some, if you've ne- people out there have never read his collection of short stories, some it is a delight. It's one of my go to books when I th- every time I see it in a shop, I think I better buy that for someone. And uh, I gave it to Alan Moore actually, who absolutely adored it and read it in 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 in, in one sitting um but the, the 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 new but the safety net um this is you know revisiting the idea of how with in particular pandemics and it's quite positive at the beginning there, there is this is you say 30 years ago we would not have had the, the so many of the tools that we have including communication tools how that has changed the potential of how we deal with something could you tell us a little bit more about your, your belief in this yeah, I was yeah, I was thinking about what's happened with COVID and um <clears throat> 30 years ago we had international travel but what we didn't have was the instantaneous broad spectrum communication that we have with the internet. So I was thinking about what the differences would be there. And essentially the argument that I make in this book is if you look on the time scale of civilizations and look at what has caused civilizations to collapse, there are essentially six different reasons that civilizations collapse. And the internet sort of accidentally solves all of these, or at least changes the equation on these massively. So, um, you know, one of them, a big one is pandemics. Many civilizations before us have been brought down by pandemics, you know, anything from smallpox to typhus to malaria, all kinds of diseases through history. Um, But what the internet allows, as we've all seen these past few months, of course, is excellent telepresence. Supply chains have been kept running in ways that are amazing to see. Um, telemedicine, which is only getting better. Both of these things have gotten giant bumps in the last few months. Um, and then, you know, issues about resource allocation. Um, so, you know, even back in, uh, I don't know, this is probably 12 years ago, Google started this Google flu trends thing where instead of hospitals reporting where people have flu, instead Google just looks for where people are searching for search terms that are related to, you know, running nose and coughing and whatever, and they're able to track that without a delay. Um, and so if you imagine that any of these civilizations had had the internet or some equivalent back when they were hit with the Black Plague or the Native Americans when the Spaniards came in or whatever, it's pretty clear that the it would have been a very different outcome had they had this instantaneous communication. So, so one of the prongs of the book is about pandemic, but there's lots of other, you know, there are other ways that the internet helps. Super briefly, one is just, um, you know, r- retaining information, not losing it. So, you know, the Library of Alexandria was burned to the ground, the Mayans, all of their literature was destroyed by the Spaniards, except for five and a half books that we have left. And we're trying to reconstruct the civilization from five and a half books. So, you know, but it's it's trivially easy now for us to keep things retained, um, presumably indefinitely, because they're spread out now uh, with, with Google Books or, uh, you know, digital projects for um, capturing statues or whatever. Um, so that's number two. Number three is just the issue about outpacing disaster. So the fact that information can travel instantly now, so you know when a tsunami is coming because there are sensors in the ocean that tell you this before it gets there. And even 
um, yeah, like with the Indian Ocean tsunami that happened um, 16 years ago, people didn't see it coming and hundreds of thousands of people died. But now that's now that's uh, solved. Um, number four has to do with mitigating tyranny. So everybody worries about what's happening with politics now as they should. But in fact, it's a lot better than it's ever been before because you cannot squelch information the way you used to be. So uh, the way you used to be able to do. So, you know, for example, in uh, in the USSR, you know, photos would be doctored, even weather reports would be doctored. And yeah, I mean, every everything could be doctored and told by the party what the news was, what the information was. But now there's no way for governments to be able to do that because you can always find other opinions uh, online. Um, number five just has to do with saving energy. We don't have to do things like books anymore and sending things back and forth nearly as much. I do some calculations on this about the amount we're saving that way so that we don't pass the carrying capacity of our civilization. Instead, we're moving, uh, you know, bits instead of atoms now. And, and the last one just has to do with cultivating human capital, which is to say education was something that was, um, you know, very hard to come by uh even a generation ago and certainly many generations ago um but now everyone has the opportunity to get an education if you can get to an internet which most of the world can do now you can get a world class education uh for free so that that changes um the whole globe in that way so anyway you know there's lots to be um aware of and you know, keep an eye on in terms of uh, potential problems with the internet. But as far as looking on a 10,000 year time scale at the collapse of civilizations, all of those problems have actually been solved by it. Isn't it, it, isn't it runaway species where you have those images that Stalin doctored to change? I'm trying to remember if it's in your. Uh... Yeah, that, that's in this book. That's in this book. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, I just reread Runaway Species as well. So, um, uh, so anyway, for those of you who missed it, Safety Net is uh, is just come out from uh, from Canongate. I've got the first of the audience questions here, and uh, this is from uh, Simona, who uh, has also been very useful in keeping me up to date with some of the uh, ways that airlines are treating their staff at the moment. So, thank you very much for that as well. And she would like to know why do we forget our early years? So, Heather, starting with you, because this is such an inch. These are the times that mould us. And they are the times that we also unable to grasp those memories. Well, first of all, first of all, it's a little bit controversial. Um, what first of all, what is meant by forgetting? You know, is it that we consciously can't we can't retrieve it into consciousness? Is it still there in the brain? You know, affecting how we behave and running behind the scenes. So. You know, if, if, if the question is, you know, can we, why don't we consciously remember it or able to retrieve some of those early memories? Well, you know, our brain was very different at that time. Yes, it was still you, but, you know, and as David had alluded to, you know, the sense of self is just a construct of the brain. It's not real. Like we create our narrative of our sense of self based on memories, based on how we've um, behaved in the past. But, you know, I've seen patients with all sorts of brain lesions that completely change either their personality or their sense of self. Um, if you lose your memory, your whole identity can be shattered. So, you know, these early experiences are forming the brain and changing who you are, but in, essentially you're a completely different person at that time, right? Every cell in your body is regenerated. It's changed. Your brain was in no way near, you know, what it looks like now. So the idea to retain, even to understand, you know, there's this Thomas Nagel philosopher, like, what is it like to be a bat? You know, I can never really know what it's like to be a bat. Well, you know, I can't really know what it's like to be baby Heather. 
right? That's a different organism. That's a whole different consciousness even. You know, Alison Gopnik talks about baby consciousness. is like unstructured, kind of like, you know, a psychedelic trip. I can't even imagine what that would feel like. So the fact that I can't remember what it would be like to be in that state makes sense. However, I do think that in another sense, the memories are embedded in there. They are sort of deep within this neural structure that we have, and they can go on to affect our behavior. Many psychological experiments show that early life experiences not only affects the way that the brain develops, but affects um, how we think, how we feel, how we behave. And just one last thing is that early trauma, we know releases glucocorticoids in the brain, which can then affect the way the hippocampus forms, which is the memory center of the brain, long-term memory center. And we find that people who've had early life trauma have smaller hippocampi. So they don't form as well, um, which which would even go more toward the line that we, we lose a lot, a lot of those memories. Um, so it's a very complicated story, um, but, but those are some of the reasons why I think it's difficult to retain those early childhood memories. Brilliant. The, um, thank you very much for that question, Simona. Thank you for that answer, Heather. This is uh, this is from James. James would like to know, and I'll ask you this first, Ode, why does rage dissipate so quickly, yet disgust lasts a lifetime? <laughs> and I think last lifetime suggests he's thinking of a very particular form of disgust there. But uh... Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Heather, I, do you have anything on that? Yeah, well, I've actually I've done some research on disgust in particular. So um, we know there's a part of the brain called the insula, which is active when during disgust. I found that people with OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, have a higher disgust response. So if you actually show them disgusting images, they have a stronger insula activation than others. So that's a clear kind of, it's in the cortex, right? It's a cortical structure. And with rage, a lot of it is having these subcortical parts of the brain, like the amygdala, be active in a moment, right? It's, it's a moment of emotion that then dissipates, right? Whereas disgust, um, people can, it's almost like a trait. You can be higher on your level of disgust or lower, you know, people have different thresholds. Like, you know, my husband, I'm going to call him out on this, but he likes, you know, to pop pimples, which I find to be so disgusting. Yet, yet his personality type, it's fine. Like anything gross is fine. So he has a lower threshold. So I think it's more about what's instantiated in sort of the cortex and the insula activation. We all have different levels of it. Um, which is different than rage, which is like a momentary emotion, which can come and go. The pimple yeah, that, very that's interesting. Sorry, David. Oh, I, you know, I would just add to that. Um, um, in my in my next next book, Live Wired, which comes out in August, I'm I'm making the argument that um, an emotion like disgust actually just represents an informational signal. So, you know, we're attracted to apple pie, but disgusted by the smell of fecal matter. It's just an informational signal telling us that that's going to have a lot of sugar and useful and that's something that you want to avoid. And this happens with everything. There's, the, you know, inherently they're both just molecules of different shapes that are impinging on your mucous membranes. But, but we associate particular things when we want to summarize quickly, oh, that's good, that's bad. And so it sort of makes sense to me that you would want that to be something that lasts, whereas rage is much more of a... Um, a quick signal that says, you know, here, here's an action signal. That's interesting, that that reaction to different, because exactly. in terms of decaying organic matter, if that decaying organic matter is a, a blue cheese, there may be a level of delight. If you should see it coming out from someone's feet or you're sat next to them, it's disgusting. And yet it may well be exactly the same smell. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. 
Um, this is, uh, here we go, this is from Simon. Simon would like to, I'm not sure if, if any of you have, have opinions on this, but brain training games, do they really help boost cognitive function and memory? So, of course, that's quite a wide area, but there's been a lot. I, I certainly remember Ben Goldacre in, in his Bad Science columns talked about various things that had been used in schools that were refuted as being any use but appeared to be useful. Um, so, David. Uh, I'll tell you the truth. This is still this area. is still an area of controversy. What's clear is that if you play such games, you get better at those games. And the whole question is, how much does that broaden to other categories in your life? And and there's debate on this. People are still working on it. I my opinion would be, especially for someone who's aging and has a lot less input and activity in their life, it's probably better to do than not because at least you're exercising things and you know taking a chance at. Um, you know, taking the opportunity to uh, exercise pathways. Heather, do, would you like to add? Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I would just, just add, add. I mean, you know, exactly. You Whatever you're sort of training on, you'll get better at that particular task. But whether it broadens is a question. And I always say, like, save your money um, and, you know, these brain games and just do something novel. Like, the brain likes novelty. Dopamine um, is very sort of good for the brain in terms of growth and change. So, like, if you do crossword puzzles every day, like, switch it up to do Sudoku or whatever that's called, you know, another kind of mental game. Change is good. So I actually think doing the same task over and over again, um, even though you'll get better at that task, is not as beneficial as just trying something new. Um, doing so, Even, you know, well, when we can travel again, you know, travel to a new place. You'll activate more of your brain um, than sitting on the computer doing one of these, you know, brain games. So um, that, that's always that's the advice that I give. What are the consequences of that well, for ever- sitting at home, you know, looking at the same environment every day? Because I know actually the closest I've come to this before was living in Rhode Island. And Rhode Island is a lovely place, but during the winter there is not a lot to do. And I didn't know anyone. And I my perception was at the end of a winter of basically not talking to anyone, my brain did not work as well. And my, you know, uninformed conclusion was that it hadn't had enough novelty, right? There just wasn't, it was, I don't know, but I, I felt, I felt stupid. Um, is, is, was I completely making that up? Or is that, is this something that might be happening to people in lockdown? I can, well, I mean, well, I mean, one one of the bits of it, obviously, our worlds have shrank, and we habituate to our environment, right? So the walls, you don't even see them anymore because it's just been there, and and um, it doesn't make sense to pay attention to them. But even though our worlds are smaller, um, we can create novelty and excitement within them. We just have to be more creative with that, you know. Whereas before, it was exciting to get on a plane and fly to Europe and give a lecture, and you know that was fun for me. Now it's I have a goal of, you know, cleaning out my closet and, you know, that's novel actually for me, but, you know, we can create these sort of mini goals and, and, um, in these smaller environments and it's just a matter of scaling down, but, but to be creative, listen, the brain does like stimulation and whether you're finding things online to stimulate you, whether it's, you know, trying to learn a new language, play the guitar, whatever it may be, we can still find novelty in these smaller environments. Um, it just takes a little bit more creativity. David, it's something you you wrote about with Anthony Rand in, in Runaway Species, the the speed of of, of novelty, and I, and I wondered that, you know, this what again? I can't remember what it's called. There is a specific pattern, isn't it, in the brain that each time we return? Um, I think what you're thinking about is repetition suppression, which is to say, the first time you see something, you get a big response, and the second time, you get slightly less response, and so on, um, because this is what the brain is trying to do: is make an internal model of the world. 
And, uh, you know, the first time it sees something that it doesn't understand that's novel to it in some way, it really pays a lot of attention to it. And then it becomes part of the background eventually. And so the important part is, is always seeking novelty. Um, and exactly as Heather said, um, yeah, by the way, you know, I think for some people buying a brain game that's challenging them in different ways might actually make sense. It's, it's not that it's an indictment of brain games. Uh, Heather's pointing out there's just many ways to seek novelty. I do remember there used to be a thing. I don't Baby know if Einstein. Do anyone remember Baby Einstein? I think the Disney company brought it out. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting sent a load of those when my son was very little. Man. They and the, you know, the research shows that they don't really have a, well, have a, well, at least that Einstein effect, uh, I mean, the um, Mozart effect, you know, like if you listen to, babies listen to Mozart, it'll somehow, and the research just doesn't bear out on that. I mean, music itself, yes, you know, stimulation itself, yes, but these kind of, you know, prescribed or pre-packaged programs, it's not going to have any more of a significant impact than just stimulating your kid in many ways. Um, this is this one I reckons for Helen, but either of you are allowed to jump in. Why on this. don't orcas attack swimmers? Oh, uh, so orcas are also known as killer whale whale for, the, for those who don't know their uh, cetacean species, and they tend to hunt in packs. Um, I one of the things that is interesting is the assumption that they might attack a swimmer. So orcas are intelligent creatures, uh, and they are not particularly interested in eating humans you know and, and whether that's a learned thing or whether they just don't like the smell is is not entirely clear but they they are well aware of the difference between a human and a seal or a human and a bigger whale that they might attack and so if they're not if, if it's not a food source for them they are absolutely capable of telling the difference so i would put that down to intelligence they you know it's not a known food source and so they're not going to go after it i mean you know like all things they're wild animals so don't go annoying an orca with lunch painted all over you but they're they're intelligent they can work it out same way sharks if, if a shark takes a human it's usually because it thought they were a seal uh, and actually, they do make wetsuits for surfers, which are light coloured on the underside and, and break up the silhouette that might look like a seal. And I don't know whether they work or not. But if, if a shark does go for a human, it's usually either because the human poked it or because it made a mistake because it genuinely thought it was a seal. So these creatures are not generally interested in humans. Sadly, we're not the best food in the sea. And I should recommend, by the way, last night, because I couldn't get sleep, I watched the uh, final in the Sharknado uh, series. It's really nuts. I highly recommend it. Uh, it's so great and mad, and they know exactly what they're doing. Uh, Can I just add to that, that I have actually done the experiment where we dripped, dripped human, human blood and fish blood in front of a load of sharks, and they totally ignored the human blood and went straight for the fish blood. Even if, you know, the it's you don't, it's all just, oh, this poor sharks, right? They know you are so distracted well. from my Sharknado recommendation there. To I try don't want to know about Sharknado. I'm elevating this show to the level of BBC Radio 4. I'm not happy with that. I want to dig you down into my mire of cult rubbish. Uh, George Washington's in it, right? It's set in a future. Oh, look, it doesn't matter. Um, Marina would like to know. Uh, she said, if everybody's brain is the same, why will one of my children eat vegetables and the other will not? They've been raised identically. Have I failed as a parent or is it futile to beat myself up over this cruel trick of the brain? Now, there's a lot of things going on in that question, I think. Who would like David? Uh, I mean, uh, the, I mean, the, the problem is the first sentence. Brains are very different. Brains are essentially as different as faces. If you look around a room, you see lots of difference in the structure. I can recognize all my students' brains in brain images. 
challenging because brains are physically so different. But in terms of your genetics and every experience you've ever had from your first moment onward, this takes brains off on very different trajectories. And so, um, you know, why are there Democrats and Republicans? Why do some people eat vegetables and others don't? I mean, there's uh, brains are extremely different from one another. Brains are like snowflakes in that way. Yeah. Just to add also, I mean, genetic difference, right? I mean, um, even with identical twins, you know, reared in the same house, they might have a lot more similarities than, you know, not like than, than siblings, but, but there's still going to be differences, right? So even with the same DNA, as the brain starts, the second you're born, even before that, in utero, as it's interacting with the environment, it's changing. And as you have different environmental experiences, even slightly different, um, the brains kind of diverge into different directions. Yeah. Um, this one is... Uh, oh, I should just mention, I should uh, quickly, by the way, that on uh, Thursday, this Thursday, we're doing the first in new series of uh, COVID uh, broadcasts where we're going to have various people who are, are currently working very close in terms of uh, research with, uh, if you have questions about COVID-19, about what is going on, about uh, reactions, about uh, vaccines, about all of that whole world of virology, computer modelling, etc. Uh, that is on Thursday the 11th. So that's the next Thursday. Thursday, not the one coming up, sorry the Thursday after uh, this week um, this is uh, from Mark now Heather to some extent you, you've you've talked about this already but I, I'll, I'll go to you first David um, Mark would like to know about traumatic memories getting stored in the brain differently from say didactic learning can the difference between the two be discerned by current imaging by tool. current imaging tools yeah um, essentially you have a secondary memory system that's taken care of by part of the brain called the amygdala, which is involved in very fearful situations or high intensity situations. And so traumatic memories are laid down not only by your normal memory system, but also by this other system. And one of the wild things that has emerged in the last decade is that um, normal memories can be erased because when you remember something, you're actually bringing it out of sort of deep storage into uh, a neural activity. And if you then hit somebody's head or give them a protein synthesis inhibitor or something like that, the memory can actually get erased. But not so with traumatic memories. Traumatic memories, uh, for better or worse, can, cannot be uh, erased. It's a secondary system. Yeah. Um, I think I'm talking about this. Sorry, Heather. Come on. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, you know I think there are two things, right? There's um, semantic memory, which is knowledge of facts, right? And episodic, which is the kind of memory about things that happen to you, right? So already you're, there's a two different kind of systems in the brain and kinds of the way that the information is stored. But the thing with traumatic um, memories, as David said, you know, they're tagged with emotion, right? If something is emotionally, if emotions are high, it tells you that's something important to remember. And so it can tag it and make you remember it um, better, right? That's why they're hard to erase. But when they're taken to the extreme, at times, they're so traumatic, they're, they're so, the, the system is overloaded with emotion that they, it, the brain suppresses them and they become forgotten in a way. So you can have that counterintuitive where it was so traumatic that either you dissociated to adapt, you know, the brain has all sorts of mechanisms to help you adapt when things are happening. And, and then they become more difficult to remember. Or in some cases, in extreme cases, I have patients who have dissociative identity disorder where they can only remember the traumatic memories when they're in one brain state and not in the other. We've done some neuroimaging studies with them and it's unbelievable that they literally say they can't remember these things and they're like, their brain shows that they're not remembering it. And then when, yet when they're in another state, they, they do 
these memories do come up and they have physiologic responses to them. And when they're in the neutral state, they don't even have the physiologic reaction when we give them a memory script. So it's really amazing the things that the brain can do, um, you know, to protect us. I found it we, we, uh, we did a, a monkey cage about um, sleep and dreaming and seeing where that has now got, you know, when when we think of, of Freud and what that taught us and now where we are actually in terms of, I think we might have talked about this the other week, there was, uh, I don't know if either of you, but the, the, the noradrenaline idea, which is uh, the secretion of noradrenaline for post-traumatic stress disorder uh, patients when uh, during uh, REM sleep. And, and from the research that I saw that the, um, was being talked about, that it does appear that, for instance, in terms of understanding trauma, we're beginning to find ways where the dreams and, and the sleeping mind that, that with, with the right either inhibitors uh, in particular, you can start to change people's, uh, you know, traumatic, uh, the, the way that they, they, they really have traumatic experiences for their benefit, which was, seemed quite remarkable to me, that level of understanding. David, have you seen anything about the noradrenaline stuff? I haven't, but I, haven't, I will say I, I will say why we dream is is still an area. I mean, of course, you're right that we've made a lot of progress on a lot of fronts in neuroscience, but it's still something that um, uh, we don't have a super clear story on. Um, I'm actually publishing a new hypothesis on this um, this month, and uh, it's a completely new model of of why why we dream. Um, anyway, I just, I just want to point out that it's interesting to me that in 2020, we still can have, you know, completely new, uh, frameworks about something as mysterious as sleeping and dreaming, which we spend a third of our lives in. Well, that's you know, you know, Sorry, Heather. I was just going to say, even with all the advances in technology that we have, you know, we can do neuroimaging when people are sleeping and, and seeing what's happening when they're in REM sleep. I still, um, harken back to like Freud, some of Freud's ideas are panning out, not all of them, but some of them. And I think that the idea that, you know, what things that are normally suppressed, you know, you have activation in the prefrontal cortex that downregulates subcortical areas like the amygdala, so it can suppress emotions or the hippocampus, so it can suppress memories. And when you release that prefrontal cortex activation, when you can decrease the prefrontal cortex, it allows some of these things to come to the surface. And dreams are one of those states in which, you know, you have less activation in the prefrontal cortex where it can allow things that are sort of under the surface to come up. You know, so Freud had it right in some ways, obviously not completely, um, but even things like PTSD, we're finding now that things like MDMA um, are helping them. So normally when they re bring up these memories, they're so traumatic that they can't really tolerate them and reincorporate them in the brain. But when you give them a drug like MDMA, they can kind of remember them in a more neutral environment. They can almost in a way um, reprogram their brain so that they can have the memory without the associated um, horrible emotional or subjective experience that goes with it. Um, and so, you know, we're discovering all these things, but but even before we had this technology, you know, certain people had insights that are panning out. And I'm going to give Freud some props for that. An interesting thing in terms of also being able to understand very often how we have far less control than we might wish. And, and that, you know, something like so often with lots of different mental health issues, people still believe just get over it. And then when you find out with seeing some of the research into PTSD, et cetera, you can't there is no without working out very different and very specific, sometimes in terms of chemically intrusive ideas of trying to deal with the psychological side effects of those terrible things. And that seems to me to be a really major advance in our understanding of what it is to be human. That, you know what, it's not as much your fault very often as you like, you know, sometimes we blame ourselves for. 
I mean, that, that's exactly right. We tend exactly to, right. We tend to, um, you know, if, uh, you know, if you have a physical ailment, like a broken leg or something, we treat that very differently than if you have uh, a mental illness. And, um, in the latter case, we say, look, just get over it. And that, you know, that was the approach for a long time with things like schizophrenia and other things was, you know, just act normal. Yeah. We've got one final question, which I reckon is dead in this one, because it is, how does a hydrophone work different to a microphone? Is it just filtering out ocean noise? I know it shows, you know, but I always presume the ocean questions about all the exploration you get up to, it always comes down to uh, why hasn't Helen been attacked by a shark and why is she recording? uh, So I love those things. So It's very distressing that so many people would like me to be attacked by a shark or sit on a plane like the Easter thing. Make sure they want to learn from you. Your, your, your four-limbed self is something which has been, you know, tremendously encouraging to a lot of people. Well, as a scientist, you know, we're, we're happy to be guinea pigs sometimes. Okay, so the hydrophone. So what a hydrophone is, is an underwater microphone. And they are really interesting. It's one of the great frustrations that uh, we can't hear sound underwater easily. Sound from the air sort of bounces off the ocean surface, goes back into the air. Sound from the water bounces back down from the surface, goes back down into the water. But even if you put a normal microphone into the water i don't recommend this because they're not made to be waterproof even if you put it in there it won't hear anything and the reason it won't hear anything is that something we call acoustic impedance is different in those two things and what that means in practice is that basically that if you imagine here in the air you know there's air molecules it's not very hard to push on air molecules and they bump into other molecules and it happens relatively slowly but it's very easy for me to move my hand through the air to create a push but water is very very hard to compress so it's basically like thumping concrete um and and so sound travels through it very differently so if you have something which is receptive to the very gentle waves of air if you put it in this thing that looks like concrete it just no sound can travel from one to the other and so basically you need a completely different type of listening device in order to hear underwater but the interesting thing about humans is actually we do hear underwater it's just that our ears have adapted to listening in the air so actually inside inside the cochlea of our ear it is fluid filled it's very you know and it's thought that ears evolved underwater with fluid um, and then you come up into the air and suddenly you've got a problem in that you've got a you've got a, a, a water hearing system and now you've got all this air and that is what the the inner ear the middle ear is for all these little bones and all this shape in the middle is basically uh it acts as a almost like a translation service translating the sound from the air into the water but of course the frustration is that then when we put our heads back underwater we can't hear through our ears but we can hear through our jaws so so the the difference between sound and uh sound in air and sound in water is is really interesting but it also if you if you do next time any of us is allowed in a swimming pool or perhaps you can go in the sea when you do stick your head underwater you're not hearing through your ears you're hearing through the bone structure uh, which is the the way that whales hear whales don't hear through their ears they hear through their skull and their jaw oh i so hope you were then going to go into the aquatic ape hypothesis i no. love the fear of that creates so much fun um or at least the babel fish from hitchhikers anyway um Heather, thank you so much for joining us. Can I, uh, now I, I know you're working on a book at the moment. I, I don't think it's going to be out this year, is it? Are you allowed Next to? Year. Study, I don't know, but yeah, I'm working with, um, it's going to be Simon and Schuster coming out next year um, and related to impulse control in the brain. And I highly that's recommend it. That's all I can say. It's a big, it's a, it's a big uh, cliffhanger. 
<laughs> there's loads of, of uh, headlines online. Go and have a look at those. David, you were mentioning uh, that you've also got an, another book coming out as well. Uh, so, uh, can, yeah. you, can you give us the title of that again? The title of that, that again? Com- that comes out in August. That's called Live Wired, and it's about brain plasticity. In other words, how the brain is constantly reconfiguring its own circuitry. Um, you know, every moment of our lives, and that's how you record uh, what's going on around you. That's how you become who you are. And also mention the safety net is. At the moment of revisiting, and I really do. Some is because every story is about three pages long, isn't it? As far as I remember, each one is a perfect. Uh, it's just the and each one to me is a thought experiment. I think it's kind of your and they're such great thought experiments. They're a perfect thing uh, to to read last thing at night, just to kind of you know inform your dream, dreams and take you on a uh, a more exciting uh, adventure. And uh, also, David, I'm going to be talking to you later on, and that's going to be available to all of our Patreon uh, supporters. So thank you very much for that, Helen. Uh, I should mention, of course, see shambles is still up the show that we didn't do at the albert hall that we did from our virtual albert hall uh two weeks ago and you talk a lot more there as well about sound in the ocean and and uh sound also uh above sea as well, well don't you, you? Yes, and so Sea Shovels is not only still there, but World Ocean Day is coming up on June the 8th. And so there will be even more. So Sea Shambles was just the prelude to a whole day of ocean things. I'm not obviously involved in all of them. However, there is a programme on BBC4 that I've made about the ocean called Ocean Autopsy, which is a health check of our oceans. And that will be going out on the evening of uh, June the 8th. So lots of World Ocean Day things are coming up. And any moment now, we're going to be joined by Baba Brinkman. So I thought just before we get Baba, who I first met, I think 2009, Edinburgh Festival, where he did the Evolutionary Guide to Rap. I think that was the year. It's fantastic. I thought I'd just have a nice quick, a quickie question, like a kind of two-word answer question for you. So I've got got this one from James, which is, is is free will an illusion? So um, that should be a pretty quick one, isn't it? Uh, Yes. Uh, Yeah. That's what I think. Free will is an illusion, at least what we understand, what we understand from neuroscience, um, that our brain decides and then we're kind of the last to know about it. So I often say that we might not have, maybe we, our unconscious has free will, um, but again, it tells us about it after the fact. The brain makes the decision and we're the last to know. And there was, I think, and I'd actually thrown in a really long answer. David, it's something you talked about in your series, The Brain, as well. Um, um, yeah, I, I think most most of neuroscience thinks we probably don't have free will, but the fact is we're still a very young science. And so there may be something in 100 years where we come to understand this in a different framework. Who knows? I would say my two-word answer is, you know, uh, nobody knows. At the moment. You have, I'm trying to remember, in, in the brain, where you talked about the fact that maybe on a kind of big-scale free will appears, but there is a smaller level of kind of personal free will. I'm trying to remember. It was uh, used to selection a kind of uh, vibrating balls. There was there was a uh, something that you... Ah, I mean, I was actually using that experiment to demonstrate why we might not have free will. It's just that... You know, if if uh, right, I built a cage of mouse traps and ping pong balls, and it's extraordinarily complicated um, to the point where it is not determinable. You cannot determine where all the balls are going to go. Balls are going to go because in a small system like that, it's just too complicated. And so, what I was pointing out was that even if we don't have free will, it doesn't mean we're predictable, simply because of the size of the system and the complexity of it. 
that was that was a great show. So I highly recommend you turn uh, to that. Now we're going to be joined. Uh, I, the question I unfortunately I asked too big a question. Baba's now Baba's back again. Uh, I should explain to anyone watching as well. Uh, we made it as hard as possible for David because he's on the west coast of America. We made it as hard as possible for Heather uh, because Heather and Baba also sometimes do double acts together as well and also have two kids together. So they're doing this incredible kind of childcare routine first thing in the morning in New York as well. Um, wow. Baba, um, let's stop. Baba, Baba, let's stop. I was trying to remember. Two thousand and nine was it? Was that the evolutionary uh, guide to uh, the rap guide to evolution? Yeah, that was when it premiered, and we were doing the shows in the basement of the Cannons Gate at the Fringe there. That was so... I love... Carl Sagan is my god, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Carl Sagan is my god, and Richard Feynman too. And uh, that was... Uh, but that was... It was so great when I first saw what you were doing, because you, you've you've gone off now in a lot of other areas in terms of, of explaining science, scientific ideas, cultural ideas, through using rap. And it's, it's some people, I think, would almost say, have you hemmed yourself in? But I would imagine that by hemming yourself in there, it's made it even more kind of uh, fertile for creativity. Is that true? Well, I think well, I think I started as a rapper and I've never changed course. You know, I've I was always like, I'm going to do hip hop. It's going to be dope rhymes. I'm going to get the crowd moving. Um, and And so there was a kind of. Um, you know, okay, but but what I'm gonna what am I gonna rap about? And it was in 2009 that I hit this evolution thing, and then I was like, oh, the findings of science, the sort of interactions between science and culture, it's such a rich and fertile ground. It's what you explore in in your comedy, and and what so much good science writing about is about. So, you know, in that sense, I feel like um, you know the the vistas are very broad, but the challenge remains: make rhymes out of it make songs out of it like really capture it within this medium and it's the medium i've loved since i was a teenager and i'm just trying to push it in a new direction i was thinking about whether there's anything you thought i'm gonna gone you know what these rhymes are too hard because we had in a different way one of the infinite monkey cages we did quite recently was about quantum theory and it was the only live show where we actually were lucky we had some people signing for people who were hearing impaired and they actually said can you do a bit of a rehearsal i said it's kind of an improvised show but we'll try and it turns out that uh, sign language is still not covered all of the terminology of quantum theory and there was a beautiful thing we see this wonderful fluent signing of some of these ideas and then just suddenly which is <laughs> the correct reaction to to a lot of quantum theory anyway the inter the international symbol for quantum theory response <laughs> Now, so have, you, have you found anything where you've gone, you've started and you gone, you know what, this one, I just can't. Is, is, is there any area where you find actually compressing it into uh, rap has been, been the most problematic? Well, all, all the all the sort of Latin terms of complex science actually really work well for rhyme schemes. So, I mean, no, phonetically, you can make rhymes out of anything. But what I do have happened quite frequently, and it just happened yesterday, um, is I'll start writing a song about a topic and I'll realize I just don't understand it well enough to capture it. And the rhymes are pulling me one way. So I'm trying to write this new song about fourth generation nuclear reactors, these sort of modular ones that they're manufacturing and trying to have on site and they can power like a community rather than a whole grid. And man, like trying to get the plutonium and liquid sodium and, you know, the rhyme schemes are, and I, and I sent a draft to the um, people that I'm working with on it. And they're like, um, actually that's the molten salt reactor. The other one is liquid sodium, which is a fast breeder. So what you wrote was nonsensical and it's back to the drawing board. 
<laughs> that is that a difficult thing where thing to be it's peer one... reviewed by your peers in kind of rap, but it's the fact that then you have to be reviewed by scientists who go, I mean, it's a lovely punchline, but I'm afraid you'll find that it's filled with inaccuracies. Because I, it's a, that. <laughs> Is that one of the things that draws you to it? Because I find that when I'm working on certain shows, I have the same thing, which is when I'm kind of trying to come up with a joke, I then realise that I can't come up with a joke because I don't have the level of understanding that leads to a proper, punch, a proper punchline. Yeah, and, and it's, you know, it's a lofty goal, but the goal is that it's fun and <clears throat> engaging for anybody, but the scientists get even more from it. You know, and that's where that extra layer of homework is required because you have to have the sort of in-jokes and referentiality and the signals that you've read some of the primary research and really know the dynamics at play, but it can't be totally inaccessible for people either. So it, it sends me back all the time. I feel like, I, you know, doing rap guides to big topics like neuroscience or evolution or religion or, um, you know, nuclear energy, whatever it is, it's like a new master's degree every six months for me because I'm constantly like, oh, I got to research this properly. I, I can't embarrass myself with it, um, which I think is um, part of what the power of it as well. Because once I finally get it and it's been validated, I could be like, this is peer reviewed rap, um, <laughs> you know, taking it up with me or with my backup, the scientists. And, I, you know, ironically, I didn't expect this to be the case. I had a scientist say, could you write about Darwin? And I was like, cool challenge, let's do it. But it makes me way more gangster uh, because I used to be a humanities person. Like, this is my interpretation, my opinion about the literary possibilities. And now I'm like, facts, you know, so just get, there's a swagger in it. That is great. I, I, and, and that show was, as I said, the first thing of yours I saw. And it was so impressive in terms of how it means that people go away. It, it's made, you know, it's, it's, lectures are hard, you know, and and the fact, and as you said as well, part of that entertainment side to it as well, where you, when you're talking about certain ideas where you have to make sure that you're pleasing the scientists as well. I presume that's a bit like Frasier. As far as I know, with the Frasier writers, they used to sometimes go, and at this point, we can have this joke about Shostakovich. Yes, only 7% of people will get it, but it's okay. There's enough stuff either side, and those 7% will suddenly feel so included. And so it adds that extra little kind of grab. So do you feel that same thing? So do you thing? feel that same thing? Yeah, in a way, that's kind of like the process of uh, of you know, purifying a chemical element, right? Is that like mainstream media can only put a few of those in, but there has to be a, a ton of generalized laughs all around. But now with the like Cosmic Shambles or with The Fringe where you can put on a one-hour show that's all science content beginning to end. Um, you know, you wouldn't have necessarily gotten that on on NBC, but now the boutique audiences that just want their science laughs all the way through get, you know, get what they crave. What are you going to do today? Um, so you mentioned free will, and um, uh, um, Heather and I uh, have two kids. You can hear them thumping around upstairs right now. We're, uh, they're literally between us. They're they're feral. I'm in the basement, and Heather's on the top floor, and they're like <laughs> up there. So we'll we'll assess the damage. Um, they, uh, the three-year-old uh, seems to have a little bit less free will than the six-year-old, and the six-year-old a little bit less free will than us. Uh, but living with a neuroscientist, I got very fascinated by consciousness and free will. So um, I have a song called Can't Stop about the neuroscience of free will, which I'm going to do. Brilliant. So uh, everyone also follow what Baba's uh, up to. There's, uh, your website is, I can't remember, it's, it's, it is just babbabrinkman.com, isn't it? Babbabrinkman.com, yeah, yeah, and all the social handles, yeah. 
and and go and and again you there's there's loads of this stuff online there's uh albums you can download and buy Uh, Brinkman, over to you. All right, here we go. So this is Can't Stop. Let's see if the beat see if the beat plays. We got a little green screen trick. All right. When I was a young rap artist in Western Canada, picturing myself with a platinum chain, this is what I thought I'd rap. Listen to this lyric, it isn't freestyle, it's written I wrote it of my own free will, it was my decision Every intimate constituent part of it was deliberate I considered how to script it and how to stand and deliver it I knew I could get up in front of it and do a lot of the hard stuff And the crowds would love the smell of it like human and shark blood Just chumming the water, bringing a little bit of aquatics This is the next lyric, it's freestyle, I mean I got it I hope it's forethought, but that doesn't mean nothing comes before thought Look at the source of your thoughts You might find the doors blocked If every decision is made in a part of my brain That's invisible to me That's will but with a subliminal origin I'm not thinking it's too free All I'm trying to do is be open And bring the people in And drop a lot of neuroscience Like my name was David Eagleman Or Heather Berlin That's how it all blends together Yeah see I could drop a reference to Heather Cause she's literally upstairs But what am I doing here Busting this rhyme in my basement Am I a puppet on a string Who couldn't do otherwise a slave to my subliminal reptilian amygdala forces with no self-control coming up out of my neocortex I don't know I'm just trying to live if I need an answer to this I'd better go upstairs and ask a neuroscientist see I would be like tell me that I could do a lot of this stuff and live it up and she would say no it's just your amygdala but I can't stop believing in my option to choose I couldn't stop if I wanted death down in my molecules I choose words and deeds but not wants or moods freedom is like a muscle it's only strong when it's used i can't stop and neither can you so let's continue i'll keep pulling concepts up out of my lyrical menu i mean i listened to your concepts i thought they were great yes i was like i also felt the inspiration from spacex they shot a, a whole rocket to the moon in the space station and a lot of people were watching on their tvs or playstations but at the same time i was not trying to bring a lot of visions of the moon and I was watching the rioting on CNN. It was happening at the same time, competing emotions. I'm like, how can humans be so full of negativity and so much dopeness, so much prejudice, so much bias? I think all we need is a little bit of psychological science to figure out what we're all about. Yeah, I'm just bearing all the weight of the world. You can call me Gil Scott Heron, like Robin reviewing all of his book collection up on his shelves. And like Heather, trying to teach us how our brain can model ourselves. Our brain models of ourselves can be mad simplistic. That means we think it's all angels and devils when we see people living. But people are complex. They got a lot of multi-layers. That's the thing that I learned by being a complex rhyme-sayer. But I can't stop believing in my option to choose. I couldn't stop if I wanted it down to my molecules. I choose words and deeds, but not wants or moves. Freedom is like a muscle. It's only strong when it's used. I could stop. I, I could stop. I'm just demonstrating that I can stop. I have the free will to stop, <clears throat> but it's not recommended. 
not before a song is ended. Because I spent a lot of time training this brain to rhyme at the drop of a dime. That's the kind of freedom I can claim is mine. Freedom isn't a metaphysical state at the level of atoms. It's the collection of talents that each of us can develop and manage. Freedom evolves. Evolution gave us the building blocks. Is it absolute freedom? Maybe not. But it's more than a digger wasp and more than prefrontal cortex lesion patients living today. I'll take the freedom I've got over the non-freedom of Phineas Gage. Freedom is having a brain that can reject options, detect imposters, dodge sucker punches like boxes. Freedom is having a brain that can navigate obstacles in a continuous exploration of the adjacent possible. A brain that's free enough to identify goals and pursue them and know the reasons why, even if it's prone to illusions. Freedom, if you have that kind of mind and it's at fault, congratulations, you can now be tried as an adult. Free will, it's similar to freestyle, both learnable systems that are deterministic deep down. But even if every syllable has a physical cause, free will is just the belief that I should still get some applause. Thank you so much, Bubba. That was uh, that was great. And that is uh, just a reminder to everyone, BubbaBrinkman.com, to go and find out about loads of stuff that he's, he's, he's created. And uh, also, uh, Tip Jar is down there. Uh, if you, as I said, we're still making a fund for artists and art centres. And if you can, then uh, please go to our Patreon, Patreon uh, site, Cosmic uh, Channels, Patreon Channels, Patreon. Uh, and uh, we are building up. Be getting it, uh, uh, Heather has found out the kids are fine. Everything. <laughs> uh, they've only got it's only slightly far. It's just a hint of Lord of the Flies. Thanks very much, everyone, for watching. Uh, we'll be back next week, slightly later on, with the Cheltenham Science uh, special. Uh, hopefully, see you there. And there's loads of stuff tonight. Eight thirty, Josie Long. Uh, I'm on, and we've got a load more show and tells as well. Rebecca Front and Nitin Sawney, and uh, and lots more to come. So, thanks very much. Bye. Thank you very much for listening. Support us at patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. Check out all the other stuff over at CosmicShambles.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cosmic Shambles or Cosmic Shambles Network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now.